Hey everyone, welcome back to the What Is Money show. Sitting down again today with Mr. Jeff Snyder. And we're going to keep working our way through really the history of money, central banking, and working our way into the euro dollar system today. Uh, and this really gets into kind of the murky edges of modern money, I think, where not many people understand what it is. And even those that do understand what it is, we don't understand necessarily how big or significant it is. Um, so I think we left off getting into the emergence of the euro dollar system in the 50s and 60s. So where, where do we start? I mean, I, I know this was maybe not something that was even understood until it was it was understood in hindsight, really. It kind of emerged in the darkness in a way. Yeah, I think well, a good place to start was the fact, you know, I think we talked about this last time where a guy by the name of Paul Einzig, who was a, an economist and a well-known uh, financial commentator, said, you know, he stumbled upon this global dollar market basically centered in the city of London a couple of years after it had started. And all the bankers who were operating in it told, begged him. Don't write about it. Don't say anything. We, right. We're making money here. We got nobody on our backs. There's no regulation. There's nothing. You know, just shut up about it and let us yeah. do it. And what year was that? That was around 1960. 1960. So, you know, Paul Einzig, you know, so somewhere in the 1950s, there arose this market for U.S. dollars outside the United States. Some of that was the Marshall Plan. There are any number of origin stories about this euro dollar system. And there's, there was rumors and whispers about a continental dollar throughout the 50s. And so we don't really know where it came from, how it started. It's likely a combination of things. But there, there's, there, there, start, there arose this, this robust dollar market outside the United States sometime in the 50s. And what you just said, Robert, I mean, it wasn't until the middle 1960s that authorities in the United States and even elsewhere really started to take this thing seriously. Mm -hmm. The first major study, for example was conducted by the BIS for, I believe it was a 36th or 37th annual report in 1964. That's almost, you know, that's probably a decade after this thing had gotten going. And by 1964, it was already creating all sorts of problems. If you read yeah. FOMC transcripts, which unfortunately I do, you know, <laughs> in the early 1960s, you start out in 1961, they don't mention Euro dollar at all. Yeah. And then 1962, there's a couple references. And then 1963, there's a couple more. And by the time you get to 65 and 66, you know, they're, they're talking about euro dollar all the time. Right. So, you know, it was sort of, hey, let's not, it's, it starts off in secret. We don't really know what it is. And then authorities don't come looking at the thing until it becomes absolutely huge and enormous much, much, much later. Interesting. So, and again, just to revisit briefly the definition, this is effectively a derivative dollar system on top of the dollar system which itself at the time, ostensibly at least, was a derivative of gold. Um, it, not to jump ahead of our story here, but I would like to maybe explore, this seems like there might be some commonality between stable coins today and this type of system, right? Where we have this derivative system li living in a digital universe that's derivative to the dollar itself. Is it, is it similar to that? Uh, I don't know. I kind of look at stable coins as sort of like money market funds, except okay. money market funds who sell equity shares, uh, stable coins issue digital currency. 
That, okay. I mean, I don't know how much of a currency it actually is, but that's, you know, that's sort of the point. But I think there are a fair amount of parallels that we can draw, at least the at least so far as purpose and intent mm -hmm. are concerned, because mm -hmm. you know, that's really what the euro dollar was for. It was again, we talked about Triffin's paradox or Triffin's dilemma last time at, at some length mm -hmm. for good reason, because the money was starving for a reserve currency mm -hmm. that the gold exchange system just could not provide. Right. I know, you know, a lot of sound money advocates say, well, that's the point. You're supposed to have limited currency so that prices don't get out of control. Right. But, you know, the, the, the economy wants what the economy wants, so right. to speak. So it created these workarounds, which, which, as you alluded to, were sort of virtual currency before anybody even thought about virtual currency. Right. Because it's not physical currency. We're not talking about paper, you know, Federal Reserve notes, printed Federal Reserve notes that are being traded back and forth. That was certainly part of how this thing got started. In fact, that's what the term euro dollar really referred to in its initial incarnation was, you know, cash deposits outside the United States. But once there were these cash deposits outside the United States, what would stop, say, the, the Swiss National Bank for swapping dollars for francs, which meant no currency moved anywhere, but now we have bank transactions between a central bank and a bank and a private yeah. bank in the euro dollar system that creates some kind of monetary transaction or some kind of monetary outcome that doesn't involve the exchange of currency. And that's right. really kind of what the euro dollar system was, was this virtual ledger system that allowed the, you know, this tremendous sort of flexibility combined with this you know, regulatory black space where banks could simply transact in dollars, quote unquote, without ever having to use dollars. So it's essentially a reserveless virtual currency system based on simply ledger transactions back and forth. Interesting, okay, so <clears throat> a couple of questions here. The market starving for global reserve currency, is that specifically the market seeking a common unit of account or is this looking for a neutral medium of exchange? Is it looking for price stability, all three, a combination? What is that? Well, I think, you know, price stability, that was sort of given, give, it was sort of, you know, uh, inherited by the euro dollar system from the Bretton Woods system, right? It was a right. fixed exchange value. So the dollar denomination itself was already stable due to its its linkage to gold or what's left, what was left of it. It's, it's you know, mm -hmm. um, eroding links to gold yeah so there was a stability there was a stable unit of account there and it really was a medium of exchange and again i think we also talked about it for some length of what a global reserve currency is and what it's supposed to be remember what it is and what it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a medium of global exchange where it allows you know two very different systems two very different currencies that don't normally transact with another one another suddenly they're able to do so because they have this common medium through which to transact right but in order for that to work you have to have this currency insufficient supply and its sufficient redistribution potential everywhere around the world and that simply wasn't the case with the Bretton Woods system and we talked about gold being hoarded essentially by the United States and France mm. not really move you know not really much of the rest of the world so there was sort of these places you know Iran and all the you know all these other places around the world that were like we would really like to have some dollars and these bankers in London were like we can give them to you we don't need dollars we'll just create these bank liabilities and transactions we'll create the marketplace for them and we'll be able to mediate all of these various international uh, these various national currency systems national economies and tie them all together into this 
you know, highly, highly efficient global trade centered uh, worldwide network. Yes, a network of interbank liabilities, as you call it. So this is just uh, interconnected ledger entries, essentially, right? And is it clearly this is a very complex domain, but is it that simple that these banks take in reserves of whatever currency and then they just re-denominate it in dollars for their counterparties? Is that how they created these dollar derivatives? Yeah, it's all about their own balance sheet factors. You know, what is it that governs a bank's balance sheet? And it's, it's a lot of different things. I mean, there are some regulation even in the offshore world because banks are domiciled somewhere, their headquarters are somewhere. So they do have to pay attention to some sort of regulation, though it's not nearly as much as it would be if they were onshore. Well, at the same time, it's really, you know, what, what makes a bank do what the bank does? And sometimes it's, you know, risk uh, risk budgets, sometimes it's internal constraints that are imposed upon various activities, various new markets it's trying to get into, credit, whether it's credit, whether it's derivatives, whether it's short-term rates, whether it's you know repo, all of these various uh, money-dealing uh, activities that a bank can undertake, mm -hmm. they're governed by some internal rules that are decided by the bank. The bank decides how it's going to construct its balance sheet, and that's really the monetary constraint here. So, so long as the bank, the bank's internal rules are favorable to expansion, you're going to see monetary expansion. And that's really kind of what happened, especially in the earliest days where the marketplace was so fertile for this kind of thing. So real, there's so much demand for, you know, this monetary medium, this international monetary medium that, you know, as I said, the bankers were making so much money expanding yeah. so fast that they didn't even want anybody to know about it, which is kind right. of interesting in its own way. Yeah, they were making money by They're actually making, money. <laughs> making new money. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. And it is so it is just that, that it's just re-denomination, effectively. They're re-denomination. Right. And the easy way to think about it is you look, you're you're a bank in the Cayman Islands, and you don't, I mean, you have you've gone through all the paperwork, which little paperwork there is to make yourself a bank in the Cayman Islands, and you've created your own balance sheet. But I mean, that doesn't mean you can just start transacting your dollars and say, I'm going to create dollars out of nothing, yeah. right? Because everybody else is going to look at you like, you don't have dollars. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take right, your, right, right. your transactions. However, you set up a quote unquote bank in the Cayman Islands with a letter of credit from Goldman Sachs mm. or Deutsche Bank, all of a sudden you have dollars, right? Gotcha. Because now you're part of the club. You've been given access to this Euro dollar market, this Euro dollar world, and as soon as you establish your reputation, you don't need the you don't need the Goldman Sachs letter of credit anymore because you're part of the club. You've been transacting, you've been behaving according to these internal interbank rules, and everybody says, "Okay, your your balance sheet is as good as anybody else's." So once you surpass that level of pedigree, then you're yeah. in, and then you can start doing all this balance sheet fun, which is where the as you you know we're making money by making money. Yeah. This, is, this is it's a banker's dream. That's so interesting that, okay, so it almost, we already had this system of deferred settlement built on top of gold. That's really what currency originally was. But then this is a system of deferred settlement on top of the system of deferred settlement where it goes, we're moving away from gold being the store of value toward reputation being the store of value effectively, right? Once they submit their reputation in these interbank markets, that becomes the collateral by which they're making money by making money. Essentially, yeah. 
And then it's, it becomes self-feeding, right? Because if yeah. you're good at making money by making money, you'll be able to make more money. Right. And the more money you're able to make by making money, the more accepted you are by everybody else in the system. Yes. And of course, the more people want to be you too. But, you know, barriers to entry are not really that, that large outside the United States or in this offshore world. So it's sort of like it kind of ends up being like the Wild West, which yeah. – in some sense, that sounds good. I mean, that's sort of the free market approach to a what was a yes, public hybrid right. problem. But, you know, sometimes, you know, naked aggression in free markets, you know, as the Austrians say, Cantillian effects, yeah. where if you're if you're afforded the privilege of making money first, you're going to benefit from it first, regardless yes. of whether or not it's it's a good idea in the rest of the economy. And so sometimes money creation kind of loses sight of itself. Yes. You know, as we, I think we talked about yes. before, money's supposed to be a tool for commerce. But yet, after a while, these banks said, you know, we're just going to create money to create money because it's making us money. Right. And then it's sort of instead of, you know, acting as a tool for global commerce, you sort of it sort of becomes an object in and of itself. And that's really where it goes. It starts to go astray, which in the euro dollar world, it didn't take very long for that to happen. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it because it becomes a bit Darwinian, right? Where you do have these, I guess you could say there's kind of a predator and prey dynamic where if you're in that seat of power and you have the reputation or you have the letter of credit, you've done whatever, uh, you've passed the barriers to entry, let's say, whatever they may be, you're now in a position to kind of prey on the property of others in a way by expanding well, but it's not that clean cut, I suppose, because you, you no, again, it's, it's your reputation. If you tr if you are too aggressive, you could destroy your reputation. Right. And I, I would argue that people, you know, especially in its earliest days, there was legitimate use to all of this. We needed the expansion. The globalized economy needed the expansion. Mm -hmm. And this was this was a good way to meet the need, the monetary needs of expanding economy. Like a lot of things, you know, human beings are, are not infallible and they lost sight of its purpose and eventually went way off the rails, got kind of back on the rails and went way, way, way off the rails again, yeah. which is, you know, the dynamic of humans and money and finance from time immemorial. Yeah. No, so that's a great point. Then this is this is a slight tangent, but it just comes to mind. You know, um, do you follow Jordan Peterson at all? Yes. Okay, so I'm a big fan of his, and he argues that the original store value for humans was reputation. Yeah. Like if we're all out hunting uh, a woolly mammoth and one guy brings it down, clearly you can't eat a whole woolly mammoth. So if you share the food with others, then that creates a reputation for you that the next time they bring down a woolly mammoth, they're likely to share food with you. So this sounds like that in a way, like this is getting us you know, we, we became more sophisticated and gold became a store of value. But then as we started to scale gold, we got back to this reputation as a store of value in this Euro dollar opaque marketplace. Well, money is always about trust and trust is really kind of reputation, right? Even gold is about trust. It was, you were trusting a metal that wouldn't corrode and wouldn't lose its store of value because of its, you know, intrinsic physical properties, which right. We're kind of taking that same idea and moving it into a bank's balance sheet, which is an abstract way of doing it. But it's really the same thing, mm -hmm. just an abstraction. You know, as we said, we're derivatives of currency, which are already derivatives of money. So, you know, it kind of makes sense that it would move in that fashion. And the reason why wasn't because bankers wanted to take over the world and, be, and create an evil cartel, right. as some people like to allege. It was because they were trying to fulfill a role that not only helped the global economy, but yes, it paid off for themselves. But that's 
you know, it's supposed to, that's, that's how it's supposed to work, right? If yeah. it's a lucrative business because it's a worthwhile, uh, what's a worthwhile function, we should want a lot of people trying to do their best to solve that puzzle. And that's really what happened. It's just, as we said, it, because it's money itself, it was very easy to, to take it in the wrong direction or to take it too far really is what happened. Yeah, I would, I agree with you. Like it's an abstraction or social construct. Um, I guess the problem here is that when you look at something like gold, even though we're using gold as money, right? We're almost ascribing this social construct of money to gold because it gives you these certain properties. It's a not, it's not a politicizable abstraction, right? There wasn't anything anyone could do to distort gold necessarily. But when you get into this banking, the business of banking, these abstractions, especially when they're just interbank entries, they're very vulnerable to politics at that point. And that seems to open them up to just all kinds of uh, misbehavior over time. So, well, you know, gold was not free from politics either. Again, we don't mm -hmm. want to romanticize that. There are any number of problems. And really, gold, where the politics came into it, was possession. If you, if you possessed gold, the which violence yeah. tended to happen quite a lot. Gold used to pool into very narrow, a very uh, small number of hands. Yeah. That allowed it in, you know, people being people, they use that to their political advantage as they would. Yeah. And it's the same. Yeah, you're right. It's the same thing with the euro dollar system because it privileged these global banks who could create money and authorities and all these national economies were, yeah. were happy to look the other way. Yes, they, they have exercised their political muscle because they, not the Federal Reserve, they hold uh, hold possession of the printing press. Yes. And they have been known to use it uh, to their own uh, advantage. Yes. So is this almost like a, I'm going to just throw out a term here. I don't know if it makes sense. Like a trickle down fraud from central banking. Because the original fraud of central banking is really just fractional reserve and then ultimately zero reserve banking, right? This is a contract, this banknote is a contract for gold. Right. And then over time, that contract was gradually and then ultimately broken. Does That then is enabling this system of privileged access that we're calling the euro dollar system that was uh, almost a second order effect of that, um, uh, of central banking itself? Yeah, I don't, it, it's, it's tough to separate the two, but it really, I mean, the euro dollar system sort of arose without any central bank influence. And that was kind of by design because mm -hmm. especially, the, you know, you think about the monetary rules of the 50s and, you know, 40s, 50s and into the 60s, you know, that we're still depression era bank rules. So, I mean, the banking system said, you know, let's get out from underneath regulation Q, for example, and regulation yeah. D and all those other regulations that were left over from the 1930s, which can I mean, you, sorry, some of them were okay. A little bit about those, just D and Q. Regulation like Q, which was the big one, which was uh, a really ridiculous uh, read by politicians of what drove the Great Depression. They thought it was the idea that banks' competitive deposit uh, competitive deposit rates had led to competition between banks for money, and that created a monetary problem. So they said, "We're going to set a ceiling that banks can can pay on mm. deposits that are coming to their uh, come into their possession." When in mm. fact they set the ceiling, and then the money rates never really ever hit it because that was <laughs> never really a problem. Right. So in the 30s and 40s, Regulation Q said the deposit ceiling was this, and money rates are always less than it. And then we start to get to the late 50s and 1960s, where things begin to normalize, and all of a sudden, you know, money rates start to pop up against the ceiling, 
And banks in the United States were then hamstrung, especially when there's this offshore money, a money market for dollars, which has no regulation queue and anybody can offer whatever the market competitive market rate would be. So now that you have another reason for dollars to the dollar capacities to move outside the United States because of this leftover, ridiculous, absurd regulation queue from the Great Depression, which has no business, had no business in the Great Depression, but had no business in the 19, you know, globalized for, uh, in, you know, moving a recovery in the 50s and 60s. So there was there were others like that, that, you know, Regulation D, which set reserve requirements. Initially, there were reserve requirements that banks had to hold against their euro dollar liabilities, yeah. which I mean, it seemed like a good idea. But banks are like, this is sort of it's it's it's, it's a paperwork. It's 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 a hassle. Yeah. But it wasn't really I mean, it's Regulation D isn't really doing what it's supposed to do, not when it pertains to euro dollars. Because banks could manipulate their balance sheet between their their U.S. the U.S. parent and their offshore subsidiary. In fact, that's really where a lot of the uh, euro dollar capacities came from. Was that banks would transfer their deposit liabilities outside the United States, usually to a London subsidiary, and then borrow the funds back in an interbank loan from their offshore subsidiary. Wow. So they're they're manipulating their balance sheets in order to get out from under and you know. There are all sorts of capital controls and all right. sorts of you know, restrictive monetary regulations inside the United States that just push more and more outside. Interesting. So reg, is it reg Q? Is that what you said it was? Regulation Q was yeah, the reg- interest rate ceiling. So that's price controls effectively. And that that contributed to the demand for offshore dollars versus even onshore dollars, right? They can just- Absolutely. And it's, yeah. you know- the history of regulation. As soon as you, you know, yeah. bad regulation is going to lead to all sorts of participants figuring out their way to round it as soon as possible. That's really kind of yeah. What you could say all regulation creates some distortion yep. like that, right? Yeah, it's really about what it's, it's cost benefit analysis, right? If the yeah. regulation imposes severe penalties, then maybe the regulation works. Yeah, but in, in regulation Q and regulation D, in their in their case. There wasn't really much penalty at all. In yeah. fact, because authorities didn't really understand the euro dollar system, the banks figured it out long before the regulators did. And so they were able to take advantage of that regulatory, regulatory blank space and grow this euro dollar system so that by the time authorities caught up with it, it was too big to do anything about really. Yes. Okay. So, and then Reg D you said was capital reserve requirement. Clearly the lower the reserve requirement, the more expansionary it is to the money supply. Is this something then that created non-linear effects? Like if we lowered the reserve requirement in the U.S., this would even increase the euro dollar supply even more? No, it's. I think Regulation D was sort of just a lingering holdover from the the, the past way of looking and even doing you know fractional reserve lending okay. because the euro dollar system was essentially reserve less, regardless of the onshore regulations. It really only imposed a certain certain liability in a narrow set of circumstances that banks had to adhere to. So by and large, they figured out how to circumvent that anyway. So you know, by 1969, the Federal Reserve said we're going to go to zero reserve requirement on euro dollar liabilities because that's a that's the effective reserve requirement that the private system had already gone to. They've already figured out how to do how to manipulate yeah. everything anyway. So let's just scrap the regulatory requirement. Now they brought it back a little bit later in the seventies, but it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't around for very long because again, the effective reserve requirement was zero from the very beginning. Okay. So maybe I'm asking about just capital reserves in general, the relationship between that 
in the US versus the euro dollar system. If we lower the reserve requirement in the US, that would then expand the ability of Goldman Sachs, for instance, to issue more letters of credit, right? They can issue more debt against their reserves. That letter of credit could then go to this Cayman Island bank, which could become exponentially more euro dollar, uh, euro dollars, I guess you would say. Am I thinking about that relationship correctly? That domestic policy does influence the size of the euro dollar market, or is it is it different? No, I think there, those those linkages were broken in the very early days. Once the dollar system started, you know, it started itself out in the fifties. Yeah. It really didn't matter what authorities would do. For example, in the early 1960s, you know, the Federal Reserve didn't, wasn't really sure what to make of the euro dollar system. And so they said, well, let's raise rates domestically to try to get some of the dollars flowing back because they really thought like that, you know, that it's yeah. a it's a separate system and it's a foreign currency almost. And okay. so if we raise the domestic money rates, they'll have dollars flowing back in the U.S. Well, what they found out was that the euro dollar system just raised rates outside the U.S. because there's you know, it's wow. a competitive marketplace. So the Fed tried to, to, get, to influence some of those dollars back on short, thinking about it wrongly. And what they found out was they didn't really have much influence at all because the market would respond to what it's doing in the way wow. the market wanted to respond. And once the system was set up offshore, it really didn't need any more letters of credit, for example, from Goldman Sachs because they were already there. Mm. So now we're just piling on more external derivative reserveless currency on top of original derivative or reserveless currency. Wow. Once it started, there really was no more need for anything from the U.S. to, to really feed the system because it was already it was sort of like a self-contained process. It really was a, a monetary ecosystem all of its own. Interesting. So kind of created this dragon in a way, right? With this, the various regulations and not and by virtue of being the global reserve currency, not having sufficient supply of dollars abroad, there was a demand for it. You know, these other regulations contributed to its growth. I mean, this is a, a dragon it was, of the It's Fed's almost making. like the perfect storm here. All of yeah. these things combined together at exactly the right time in exactly the right way to let the system go. And, you know, was and it, especially since this, there was no central plan, there's no design to it. There's nobody yeah. that said, "Hey, let's hold a conference and figure this." Out. It was simply an ad hoc system, which which allowed it to then respond to all of these very favorable conditions. And it was almost like you know the perfect set of circumstances that just allowed this thing to go, including the fact that regulators, especially in the United States, were willing to just look the other way because I think we said last time. They didn't know how to solve Triffin's paradox because, right. you know, national currency tied to national reserve trying to be an international currency couldn't happen. But yeah. if you have this offshore system, even though it's called U.S. dollars, there's no link of those virtual dollars to national gold reserves. So we've kind of solved Triffin's paradox without having to get our hands dirty. So authorities right. were like, go ahead. Yeah. This is just one less thing for us to think about. Plus, it's outside the United States, so we can say it's not our not Everybody our. Everybody got to look the other way. <laughs> yeah, every and every in the Bank of England, even though the banks were located in London, the Bank of yeah. England said you're all dealing with just foreign. Not our job either. And you know, there's wow. nothing in the Cayman Islands, so <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just it's just the perfect set of circumstances that allowed this thing to to just start up and then just proliferate like mad. Interesting. So it's almost like the cracks in the dam in a way, right? We we created the dam around US dollar liquidity, but 
there was so much demand for it outside that it just flowed around it somehow. I think it's a really good analogy too, because in the 1960s, what happened is yes, those cracks, you know, the regulations and bad policy and you know, gross monetary ignorance, especially on the part of authorities, start, you know, that led to the cracks in the dam. And then the great inflation starting in 1965, what was mm. that? That was when the dam finally started to really burst in the zero dollar mm. system. And not just domestic, not just offshore, but onshore, there's there's definitely monetary components to it, like repo. All these yeah. things, these, you know, once set free into the wild, the thing just went crazy. And all, you know, the banking system started dreaming of all sorts of different ways to do these reserveless virtual monetary transactions that authorities just couldn't keep up with. It was, right. it was a period of massive bank as well as money evolution. That was the 50s and 60s and into wow. the 70s. And there, you know, in the by the early 1970s, the Fed, the BIS, the Bank of England, everybody just kind of threw up their hands and said, we can't even define money anymore. We M1, mm. forget it. M2, forget it. Mm -hmm. Those things just don't apply because banks are doing all sorts of crazy crap. I mean, how does how do we keep track of repo? We don't even know what the hell repo is. You know, mm. now we have currency derivatives, currency swaps taking place all over. We can't keep track of those because mm. they don't get reported, you know? So in one sense, once the dam burst, it wasn't just qualitative or quantitative expansion. It was also qualitative expansion, mm. which is kind of what gave us the the seeds of our own destruction up until 2007, 2008. Wow. So the other component to this is that because to your point, post-World War II, we we're globalizing, we're becoming more productive, deeper division of labor. So what may have otherwise been runaway inflation as a result of all this expansion was probably dampened a lot by increasing productivity, right? Increasing goods and services. So this kind of gave runway for the euro dollar system to really get up and running, so to speak. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's, you know, like we said before, its original purpose was a good one. It was, yeah. you know, the original, you know, let's finance, you know, the reconstruction of Europe, let's yeah. finance trade networks to the far East and things like that. And just, you know, without those kinds of restraints and with privileging the banking system who can make money and making money, yeah. you know, it led to a set of really bad incentives that it just got way out of control, especially when, by and large, most people thought we were still on the gold exchange standard of Bretton Woods in the 60s when we really weren't. Right. We had gone, all the functions had been absorbed, or most of the functions had been absorbed by the euro dollar system. And it led to the situation where nobody had their eye on anything. And we're still talking about, you know, what is the price of gold compared to the official U.S. dollar rate when, you know, it's the more relevant money question was what is the what is the euro dollar payment euro dollar money rate in London? And right. what is it in, you know, say Montreal or Singapore? Yeah, that okay. was that was the real money price of money that we should have been paying attention to. And basically nobody outside the system really was. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. 
led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. That's interesting. So that, so th- that the price of money in London became the primary mechanism by which we could discern the expansion of the global dollar supply. I guess dollars, especially dollars. The, yeah, especially comparing its spreads to those in New York and some yeah. of the other places around the world. You could tell, you know, that there was such demand for money and there was the ability to meet that demand for money because it didn't lead to any sort of yeah. deflationary crisis. Right. In fact, it went the other way. But this happened before anyone realized it, pretty much. As in, this shift was occurring, but we didn't really understand the magnitude of it. And gradually, I guess, with hindsight. Even today, I mean, the the great inflation to me is totally misunderstood. The conventional explanation of the great inflation was that the U.S. government started running deficits in 1965 to fight Mm -hmm. the Vietnam War and to finance the Great Society. And the Mm -hmm. Federal Reserve had to go along with those because it was still under an even keel policy, which meant, you know, the Alan Meltzer explanation, which is, you know, the Fed was financing greater and greater deficits, which led to inflationary currency. Mm -hmm. But, But that explanation leaves off everything we just talked about including the fact that by the early 1970s, the Federal Reserve, if you read through their transcripts, we don't know how to define, we don't know how to, we don't even know how to measure or define money. That's to me a much bigger problem than the federal government issuing, you know, running deficits, which is, you know, it can be inflationary in certain circumstances, but the fact that you have this hidden offshore shadow money expansion in all sorts of ways that nobody had any idea was really taking place or what to make of it, uh, yeah, I'm going to say the great inflation had more to do with that than yeah. it did the Vietnam War. That's incredible. I, you know, just a quick aside on this, I commonly say that, you know, one of the main value propositions of Bitcoin is that nobody can control it. You know, we have like this set of equitable rules that uh, people will, we believe would voluntarily adopt over time. You'd prefer a money that doesn't inflate to one that does. But it seems like we kind of, and I thought that was kind of the first of its kind, but it looks like we created something we couldn't control a long time ago, actually. <laughs> and that is this Euro dollar dragon. It's, uh, you know, I talk to people in digital currency and crypto all the time, and I say, I, I'm sorry, guys, but virtual currency is already 70 some odd years old. So right. it's not, yeah, you know, exactly. it's, it's new, new bells and whistles, but the idea was done a long time ago. And, yeah. you know, that also makes sense because what we're really talking about, when we talk about qualitative monetary evolution in the 50s and 60s, is technology, especially mm-hmm. communications yeah. technology. Yeah. It goes right along one and one. I mean, you started talking the early telex machines, for example, mm-hmm. that really played a central role in this euro dollar expansion because mm-hmm. suddenly you could do transactions very quickly between vast, vast, vastly different or vastly large spaces. Mm-hmm. which meant that you didn't need to ship currency because now yes. we could have computers essentially talk to each other. Yes. We didn't need to intermediate with the physical world. We can intermediate through a digital medium, which is where this, this really starts to come in. And the more robust the technological innovation, as well as its adoption and widespread adoption, the more we could move into this virtual sphere, which is what actually happened. Yes. No, that, that's a very good point. And that gets back to 
one of the primary definitions of money that I lean on is that it's just a device for moving economic value across space and time. And, you know, with gold, we had something that was great across time, but not across space. Yes. It's heavy and physical. <laughs> so we moved into all these systems, these systems of deferred settlement, credit or debt-based systems actually augment its transactability across space to do transactions more quickly. But that came with all these other risks, you know, largely political and counterparty risk. Right. And there was also, as you said, space was always a big consideration. That's really what led to the first paper market in global money, which was bankers acceptances. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you're transacting between, say, America and Europe, you got to load gold onto a ship and then you got to cross your fingers. The ship doesn't sink on the way to, to England because right. then you're screwed. Not only you right. screwed, but the British yeah. are screwed because yeah. Yeah. The money disappears. Yeah. And so, you know, it's much easier to, you know, a redeemable piece of paper to ship that across the Atlantic. And then if it doesn't go down, then you can rewrite the paper. Or if that, if that doesn't get there, you can rewrite the paper. Yeah. So there's yeah. been this, this idea of, you know, gold is cumbersome across space and time. So let's use something else, some other kind of medium. And that's always, but you know, to your point, there's always that natural tension because once you move away from that trusted medium into this paper medium, yeah. that opens Pandora's box to all of the crappy things that we're going to talk about. Yes. Um, the Euro, even the euro dollar system, it's just the tendency to remove limits uh, leads to human yeah. na- the dark side of human nature. That's where I would argue um, most of the systemic risk accumulate actually is that that gap between the settlement gap, essentially between trade and settlement. And when you, with something like gold, where we're incentivized to have more and more deferred settlement, less and less final settlement, it just stuffs the system with hidden risk over time. Do you see it that way as well? Is it like if we had something that was high frequency final settlement, that would clearly eliminate a lot of the BS from the financial system? Yeah, I, maybe, but I mean, you know, high frequency federal, uh, high frequency settlement is trying to, you know, that's what the Fed is working on. It's what Chips is working on. That's some of these international, uh, these uh, interbank exchanges are moving to real time settlements like CES, for example. So they're, they're trying to eliminate any need for really, you know, essentially to have too much reserves in the system because you can settle your transactions in real time, essentially. Well, I'm thinking but more think, like, you know, you know, where I'm thinking is Bitcoin, like high frequency yeah. bearer asset final settlement. Would that right. help cleanse the system of a lot of impurities? Is it, I, well, I mean, you're talking about essentially imposing a reserve on a non-reserved system. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not talking about digital bank reserves. I'm talking about the yeah. euro dollar system where yeah. essentially there is no physical reserve. There is no reserves are essentially what one bank says to another and the other bank accepts. So there's no final so, settlement in the euro dollar system. Not necessarily, well, I mean, yeah. there's, there's no convertibility. There's no, no convertibility. there's no real ability to say, yeah. I have a number on your, on your banks. that says, I, you know, I'm one of your customers. I have a deposit, for example. Yeah. I want physical federal, I want physical dollars from you. I can't right. get gold because, you know, that's not convertible, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, I can get dollars because the bank will deliver dollars on demand, but you know, it's, it's not the same thing as it would be is, you know, sort of the traditional banking setup where the banks, their banks essentially run by their vault cash or what's in their vault. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, what's in their vault is sort of like a, a hassle. The bank doesn't want anything in its vault because it's a cost. Right. Essentially, their reserves are, you know, their retained earnings on the balance sheet. You know, what they have that says, you know, we made money out of making money for all these years and now we have yes. retained earnings. 
that we can use to pay off losses if we need to, which is why the Basel Accords came up and they prime, that's why they prioritized capital ratios and things like that, because yeah. essentially in the reserveless system, it's these accounting fictions that become the reserve system. And those retained earnings or those bank reserves, those are central bank liabilities, right? No, but they're accounting liabilities. They're not. Who, who's the counterparty then? Is there no, but the bank is itself. What it's saying is I made money, that my expenses were less than the uh, revenues that came in. Yeah. So essentially that's the rent that the euro dollar system has collected from being the euro dollar system, right? Because that's the money they're making by creating money, which go, which flows onto their balance sheet as retained earnings. So where, like in what medium do they keep those reserves? They keep them in US dollars with the Fed or? It's just a number on the piece on the computer screen. At the individual bank itself, it doesn't have any counterparty to it. Doesn't need to be. That's where you really start to get into some of these qualitative ideas about balance sheet manipulation. I think a lot of people know about Enron in the 1990s. What Enron was doing was essentially adopting this bank model on their own balance sheet, which is essentially, we can get really creative with these things. Think about present value, for example. If you have essentially a financial asset, you know, you can say whatever you want. You can come up with all sorts of right. sophisticated statistical models and stochastic models that say Tweet this asset will be worth X in the future. Yeah. Therefore, it's worth X or it's worth Y today. Yeah. Even though it's not really worth, I mean, you're just booking future cash flows based upon modeled assumptions. But because you're saying that it has value, and everybody else in the in the system says yes, that that's the value that we agree to as well. Suddenly you have, you don't have any cash. You don't have any money. You just have an accounting fiction that everybody agrees is valuable because you have some model backing it up, not some actual activity. That's really kind of where where the system, the Euro dollar system in particular got itself into enormous amount of trouble, especially in the nineties and middle two thousands, because it started going what's called gain on sale accounting, which is essentially really taking this into the ridiculous, you know, uh, seriously insane just making crap up on the fly wow because there's nothing behind it except balance sheets yeah you know when it starts to go bad what do you do because there's no convertibility option there's no tangible money behind it it's just simply i gotta you know all these banks need to fit together in some way and if they don't start to fit together this it just starts to break down wow so it's wow so the ultimate reserve is really just the representation of a counterparty. Yeah, it's really, that's why the real money in this Euro dollar system is a bank's balance sheet, which is why I spent so much time talking about bank balance sheet capacities, because that's really the secret behind everything. And in a lot of ways, to to get a little ahead of ourselves here, that's really what the problem has been pre-crisis to post-crisis, why we went from way, way, way too much bank balance sheet capacity and money, way, way, well, not way, way, to not enough bank balance sheet and capacity post-crisis was because people started questioning this insanity and realized that we can't continue doing it. And there's no way to go back to that. That's fascinating. Okay. I'm sure we'll get more into that. But so the bank balance sheets, typically a balance sheet would be representative of something real, right? Some real assets. But this, in this case, sounds like it's more like just the actual balance sheet, just the representation of really nothing. that's that's all derivative transactions are. Yeah. It's it's essentially modeled cash flows of the future. Yes. And we're giving them a current value and calling that monetary. 
based yeah, on I know, their own it's, assumptions. It's hard to wrap your head around it. It's really hard to understand that, but that's yeah. it's really what it is. We, we have these these virtual transactions that yes. are simply representations of future cash flows and giving them a value and assigning them a value. And then if everybody agrees that that's the value, then all of a sudden we've created money from yes. you know, models. But the, individual, <laughs> models. the individual bank's balance sheet that's making the representation is also determining the inputs to that model, right? So they Absolutely. can manage their own. Yeah, that's clearly conflict of interest. Yeah, it's huge. It's, yeah. Wow. Again, we're talking about why, you know, why banks could make money by making money. That's part of it. And really, you know, that's the that was the Enron model. The Enron model was let's, you know, those banks are doing this kind of stuff. Why can't we do it as an industrial firm? Yes. And they started wow. doing it, except it's a little bit harder when you're an industrial firm because there are physical properties that you have to yeah. you have to, you know, and then they, you know, they did get into a bunch of criminal activity by taking right. it too far too, but Essentially, the Enron model was to adopt balance sheet flexibility in the way that the banking system had years, decades before. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So. Yeah, once, you, once you go down that rabbit hole, there's, it's, it's really kind of that's, there's so much there. Yeah. And no, then, you know, to talk about what we were just talking about, you know, go back to that. You can understand why central bankers just threw up their hands in the 60s and 70s and said, what the hell do we do? I mean, what's money right. here? Yeah. We can't even, I mean, these banks are doing all this stuff and what the banks were doing were having real world, real economic effects, real financial effects. So it's not like it wasn't money because it was doing things in the real economy that money would do. Yeah. It just there's no way to define it. There's no way to measure it. There's no way to monitor it. And the central banks said, well, we'll just, we'll just let the banks do it and we'll hope kind of cross our fingers and hope that we can influence them in some way that we can at least pretend we have control. Wow. Amazing. Inter fascinating story. So it emerges in the fifties and sixties and, you know, more well-known is the 1971 Nixon shock. But I think you said previously that that was just signing the death letter effectively. Yeah. Of what that was sort coming. of like just, that was just to flip this, whoever, you know, the last person in the room flipped the lights off. That's really all that was. <laughs> Because it had it had ended the other you know long before then, and really, as we said, that was you know the period of absolutely perfect conditions, including you know revolution and technology, tech, technology and communication, yeah. which allowed this you know balance sheet type behavior to take over. And really, you know, you get into the '60s and '70s, and then the '80s, where it really starts to get weird and and interesting and esoteric, and that's when it really started to explode globally. Wow, where is it? appropriate to discuss the petrodollar in this process <laughs> and what and what is its relationship with the euro dollar system could we or you could maybe you could, you could classify the petrodollar as sort of a subset but i think that's giving the petrodollar too much credit uh, i think what the petrodollar is is some people have observed some of this euro dollar behavior and, and intuited that that was the sum total of the entire system the okay. idea that the oil oil exporting countries, and especially in the Middle East, the OPEC countries, had made, had struck some sort of political deal with somebody somewhere to uh, you know exchange oil for dollars and then take those dollars and buy U.S. Treasuries. Well, no, that I mean, that's not what really happened. What really happened was that was a part of this euro. That was a subset of this euro dollar based activity, uh -huh. but because so much of the other activity was hidden and out of view, that was the part that we could part we could we could sort of see 
Oh, so people okay. started talking about the petrodollar as if that was the thing when it was really kind of the the tip of the iceberg that was visible above the waterline. Got you. So the oil exporting countries are selling oil for dollars out of, I guess, convenience, right? For the same reason. That was the reserve currency. They the needed the dollars currency. to transit. I mean, look, you're selling oil, but you don't make yeah. any goods. So you need dollars to, to import, you know, manufactured yes. goods. You don't want to get them from the U.S., which would be the easiest, right? I mean, if you're yeah. selling for dollars, you just use those dollars to buy U.S. goods. Yeah. You want to buy them from somebody else, you still need the dollars. And that's yeah. really what happened. So the U.S. ran a current and capital account uh, deficit to fight, you know, which made it seem like this petrodollar was a real thing. Yeah. But in fact, it was just the oil exporting countries using that euro dollar medium of exchange to exchange as it's supposed yeah, yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah. And, and, and the, again, you talk about we haven't talked about really store value here. Right. One of the neat factors or elegant factors of the euro dollar system was that it detached itself from store value in a lot of ways. Yeah, it functioned as a medium of exchange and unit of account, and then offloaded the store value function to the financial treasuries. markets. Yeah, U.S. Treasuries exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that was the store value part of the euro dollar money system. So. When people use the term petrodollar, I am, again, very sympathetic to that use because that's yeah. the part that people could observe and could continuously observe throughout history. But yeah. by and large, that's that's you're only seeing a part of what's really going on, which is much, much, much more, much, much more robust and much, much bigger than just that. Was that then an incentive for the Fed and U.S. government to look the other way on this because they're getting additional demand for treasuries as a result of this? Euro dollars. You would think so, but they were so freaking clueless. They didn't. They didn't know what to make of it. And I I'll give you the perfect example. This really started to become a big thing in the in the two uh, thousands. In fact, Ben Bernanke in two thousand four two thousand five said, "This is really some kind of mystery here." And he came up with what he called a global savings glut. And I still laugh because it's such an idiotic idea. Savings glut. What he essentially said was. Because they only look at the domestic part of the system. They don't care about the euro dollar system. Yeah. What they saw was there's all this money coming from outside the United States, and it seemed to pref prefer buying U.S. treasuries. Mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out where's all this money coming from. Mm -hmm. Well, the easy answer was the euro dollar system going crazy, mm -hmm. but to, there is no euro dollar to Ben Bernanke. So he said, well, foreign baby boomers must be saving, and for some reason, they love investing <laughs> in U.S. treasuries. <laughs> That's what he actually came up with. So he saw what was going on in the euro dollar system, but because he's, his worldview was so outdated, the best he could come up with is this global savings glut nonsense, which didn't survive more than a couple of years because it was wow. ridiculous. But you know, to your point, you would think treasury officials would be absolutely through the roof about this, but they didn't really know what was going on. Wow. All they knew was that there was some foreign demand for treasuries and they thought, well, this is great. Whereas the Fed thought, Maybe this is a problem. Maybe it's not a problem. I mean, what is this kind of a thing? And, you know, when your oh. mandate is only about the domestic part of the system, it really does look like everything else is happening outside, even though, you know, as we know, it's being transacted in the U.S. dollar denomination. It's not really U.S. dollars in the way that everybody seems to th everybody's taught to think about them. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. So. It's so funny how you, you spell this out in retrospect that the people we tend to think are the ultimate masters or proprietors over the monetary system were at times completely blind to the and most. Baffled. It's incredible. Wow. And well, and that, that really makes sense, too, because now you have to think, OK, money is being done by this banking system and it's gone 
gone completely insane into all of these different ways that we can, we, I struggle comprehending sometimes. Yes, and I've been, yes. I've been at this for more than 20 years. Yeah. And so you're a central bank. It's 1970, for example, and you think M1's no, M1's obviously obsolete because banks are doing something else. M2's yeah. probably obsolete. What do we do? We're a central bank. We're supposed to do money. We can't even define it. Yeah. And so the answer came later in the 70s and in the early 80s, where they said, aha, we won't have to worry about the monetary details. What we'll do is an expectations-based policy. Mm. We'll move an interest rate around here and there, the federal funds target. Yeah. We'll let people think that we're involved, we're in charge of the monetary system, but we're really not. What we're doing is we're trying to signal to the banking system. We don't know what the banking system does, but we'll let the banking system work out the details because that's what it's good at. That's what it's wow. actually doing. And so what we've been taught all along these last 40 years is that central banks are central to the system when they're really not. But in an expectations-based policy, you have to believe that they are. Otherwise, it all falls apart, right? right. As soon as you realize that central banks are not in charge, the expectation policy doesn't work. Right. It, or it runs on mythology, essentially, and legend. So as long as we think, don't fight the Fed, the Fed understands all this stuff. And that's why we've been told, told these things over and over and over again, because the Fed needs us to believe that they're the best and the brightest and they know what's going on. Otherwise, it all falls apart, which is wow. what really happened in 2007 and 2008 was when these two things collided, which was monetary competence, which the Fed doesn't have, yeah. and an expectation policy that doesn't fix a real money problem. So it was, wow. why didn't the Greenspan put work in 2008? Well, because <laughs> there never really was one. We wow. were taught and we were supposed to believe that there was. And the reason we were thought that there was was because of the so-called great moderation, which made it seem like that's really what happened. But what really mm -hmm. happened was Greenspan and the Fed was riding the coattails of the euro dollar system's you know, widespread success and calling it their own. Mm -hmm. So once the euro dollar system broke down, the Fed could no longer ride its coattails mm -hmm. and it was exposed as the fraud, the monetary fraud that it actually is. But you can see why the, I mean, I don't really have a lot of sympathy for central bankers, but you can have a little bit for them because here it is in the 1960s, 1970s, and you don't know what else to do. Yeah. And it was really an intractable, intractable diff difficult problem to try to solve. And they just thought, well, let's try it this way and see if it works. And for a while there, it did seem like it did. It just, yeah. you know, we got caught. Wow. So it's a super sophisticated confidence game at this point. And then I guess his expectations policy is effectively the Fed, you know, they've, or, central banks more generally, the Fed largely, uh, evaluating their options, realizing they don't have a lot to, they, not a lot of policy levers to control this thing. So they just decide to defer to the market in a way? Defer to the banking system and say, look, yeah. we, you know, we're going to raise the federal funds target, which means we want you to start tightening. Yeah. We don't know how it actually works as tightening, but yeah. we're going to raise the federal funds target and we're going to let the banking system figure out how that actually leads to tightening. Right. We don't know the details because we just we can't. Right. And that's that's really what it was what it was about. So we lower the federal funds rate. We don't really know how the money gets loose. We're just correlating our lowering of the federal funds rate with loose activity. Yeah. And then we're telling people over and over again that's what happens, even though it's actually the opposite. So the tail we've all been the taught. We've, we've all been told essentially a fairy tale. Yeah. And, it, and it's only because for a while there, especially in the 90s, it seemed to work.
Yeah. It seemed to be working out that way. And the Fed, to, to Alan Greenspan's limited credit, kept saying throughout the 90s, I'm a little bit nervous here because we don't do money. And, you know, you know, his famous irrational exuberance speech in, in 1996 yeah. was really about this. What he was saying is because we don't do money, the Fed, I'm talking about the Federal Reserve and the Central Bank, we don't do money. How would we know if the stock market is behaving rationally or irrationally? Right. We have no way to tell. So he was confessing in the 90s is basically saying, because we don't do money, I'm a little worried that, you know, if things start to go wrong, what are we going to do? And of course, that led to the 2000s and just, you know, when wow. it came time to actually figure out how to how to uh, how to deal with an, a deflationary monetary situation, they were just there was no chance. Yeah. OK. All right. This is all good stuff, but I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves. So. 50s and 60s euro dollar system emerges 1971 we signed the death certificate with the nixon shock we then get into this inflationary situation in the 70s maybe you could just describe kind of the cause causative factors and then what the policy response was and maybe how the euro dollar market was related well the 1970s we said we had not just quantitative expansion of the euro dollar system but also qualitative expansion which has made it much more difficult to to connect the dots between monetary irregularity which is what inflation is it's one form mm -hmm. of monetary imbalance and the real economy results and that's why it lasted as long as it did because nobody could figure out where the hell it was coming from when <laughs> quite obviously it's an inflationary currency situation but the fed you know, they they had, you know, this euro dollar thing and they argued about whether or not they should have euro dollars and incorporate them in and one to try to get a monetary handle. At the same time, they kept saying, well, maybe we should top stop targeting these monetary aggregates because they're completely useless mm -hmm. and simply try to control what we control, which were bank reserves, which should sound familiar to our our current ears. And so the Fed and the government and everybody else was sort of out to lunch here because of all of this evolution and qualitative expansion that made it very, very difficult to connect cause with effect. Mm. And that's why it went on year after year. Plus, you know, there's some other factors as well. You know, Milton Friedman had correctly identified ahead of time that, you know, the idea of an exploitable Phillips curve where central banks said that they would tolerate more inflation to try to reduce unemployment. That was a really bad idea and that was going to lead to nowhere because you can have a situation where employment unemployment goes up at the same time prices do which mm -hmm. was the stagflation of the 1970s so there was all sorts of economic failures in the fact that we don't know what's going on in the monetary system we have a bad policy regime and just everybody's out to lunch over the whole thing mm. and so the, the inevitable consequence is exactly what happened which is pretty much what you would expect to happen this Phillips curve you just mentioned, is that something we're dealing with again? Maybe you could just tell us what that is and then we're dealing with that today in 2021. Oh yeah, the, we've been the Phillips curve has mystified economists for, you know over the last 10 years, mm -hmm. ever since the unemployment rate started dropping in 2012. And essentially what it was is that AW Phillips was a British economist, went back into you know, the British kept very good statistics between, you know, labor data, price data, mm -hmm. uh, unemployment, employment versus consumer prices and whole, well, actually wholesale prices at that, that time. What he found was that there seemed to be a relationship. When mm -hmm. unemployment went down, consumer prices started to go up. And that mm -hmm. kind of makes intuitive sense, right? If mm -hmm. if businesses have to compete for workers, they're going to raise wages, wage rates because yeah. they have to compete for workers, for scarce workers, scarce, scarce um, free workers yeah. that are already engaged. 
And that raises the level of wages, which then raises the level of consumer prices. And then because their workers are getting paid more, they can essentially accept these higher, these rising levels of consumer prices. Mm -hmm. So that was the Phillips curve, the relationship between unemployment and inflation. Mm -hmm. And it's just a simple curve. And well, it used to be a simple curve. Now right. it's been, there's, a, there's now it's inflation expectations and all sorts of other things that's been incorporated in econometrics. But what happened in the early 1960s is a couple of economists from of course, Ivy League schools, uh, Robert Samuelson and uh, Paul Samuelson and Robert Solaw said that, why don't we exploit this relationship to try to maximize employment, which mm -hmm. meant that if we tolerate a little bit of inflation by this Phillips curves, you know, the way the Phillips curve is drawn, we should get a little bit less unemployment. So a little more inflation, a little bit less unemployment, that would be a good thing. And then we can, we can all control it because we're a bunch of good little enlightened philosopher technocrats and we'll just we'll just make the right inputs at the right time. And that's when Milton Friedman came along and said, you guys are nuts. This is going to lead to disaster, of course, yeah. which is what it did, because inflation and unemployment can go up together at the same time because a simple Phillips curve, like the exploitable Phillips curve, were just junk economics. Yeah. OK, so. So now we get to the you know, if you want to talk about what's going on over the last 10 years, yeah. economists had expected that we would see inflation in the real economy starting around 2014 and 2015, because it looked like the unemployment rate had gotten down to around 5% in the United States, and that would be tight. Therefore, mm -hmm. tight employment, Phillips curve, we would expect businesses to start paying more for spare mm -hmm. workers that would lead to a rise in consumer prices. But what we found out is that the unemployment rate is simply faulty, mm -hmm. right? Because it didn't take into account the massive millions amount of hidden workers that were that are that don't go into the unemployment rate in the leftover period from the Great Recession, because mm. it wasn't a Great Recession. It was a complete labor market obliteration that left so many people, so many millions outside of the labor force. They don't right. show up in the unemployment rate at all. So right. it was, they were expecting the Phillips curve to tell them one thing, but they were using the wrong unemployment rate. Wow. So this is quite literally a piece of bunk economics, right? Sounds like this would be correlative at best from data in London but um, yeah. not from the 19th century to the early 20th century. Right, right, right. Gotcha. That's where we're starting from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then the labor force too, to your point, I think after six months or something that the, these, uh, the populations just get excluded from those numbers entirely. Right. So unemployment you, could say yeah. 5%, but there could be 15% not working, something like that. If you tell the BLS, you haven't looked for work in a year, they will not include, or they haven't, you haven't worked, looked for work in a month and you sit idle for more than a year. You're no longer part of the official labor force, whether or not you would take a job or not. And wow. people stopped looking for work in the wake of 2008 because there was no work. There was no right. point to of it. Course, yeah. So the BLS, you know, they, they call and say, are you looking for work? And you'd say, of course not. There's no, there's no jobs. Yeah. Why would I be looking for work? And the BLS would say, well, you're not part of the labor force. Therefore, you don't go into the unemployment rate. 